say thank you for worshiping, uh, gathering to worship Jesus with us this morning. Um, it's important that we do. Um, it's good for your soul, but it's, it, also, it also helps us collectively to look to Jesus. He deserves for all of us to sit at his feet and, and worship him and learn from him. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, this morning, as John mentioned, we begin a new series entitled Relational. And uh, the premise of our series is this, our culture is adrift in a stormy sea of relational confusion. And let's just be fair, it's, it's, not, it's not like the culture is and we're out here immune somehow. Um, we're not isolated, we live within the culture, so it's not like we're unaffected watching from the shore. We also get tossed around in that stormy sea. Of, of confusion, and our own hearts contribute to that confusion. We're not victims. We're not victims. Our goal throughout the series is simply this. We want to graciously and humbly counter uh, that confusion where we can with gospel clarity by looking to our Father's word and by submitting to his good design. That's what we want to do. So let's pray as we begin and ask God for his help, and then we will get right down to work. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. Uh, we need to hear from you this morning, and we need your help uh, for what we're about to do. Help us to be here, to be fully here in this place uh, for this time, uh, that you would put our hearts at rest, our minds would be able to slow down and listen and receive and gladly submit to you and find life according to your word. Father, help us to do all of these things for your fame and um, Father, for our good, we need, we need that life-giving goodness from you. And so we ask for you to do that work uh, in our hearts now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon today will consider Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Specifically, just a few words from those verses. I know that's a little unusual for us. Um, but we're going to zero in on an idea, a very important idea that's found in these two verses. So let's begin by reading, by reading them. I'll read them out loud and you can follow along. This is Genesis 1 verse 26 and verse 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man. Um, you could substitute mankind in there. In fact, man is the same word that eventually was used to name the first man, Adam. Uh, he is the representative for God's creative work in mankind. So God created mankind, men and women, uh, all people in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This summer, I've been reading from a book entitled The Relational Soul by Richard Plass and James Cofield. I would commend the book to you. In the opening, Richard shares a story from his childhood about the neighbor across the street, an old man named Harry, who lived alone in a dilapidated old farmhouse. Old man Harry occasionally ate meals with Richard and his family. In fact, Richard's mom would make uh, Harry's favorite dish when he came over, which was apple pie topped with chicken gravy. 
It's what Harry liked. I've heard it's a southern dish. Is that true? Yeah, you guys would do that down in the south, wouldn't you? Um, About the time that Richard turned 12, Harry began knocking on their front door, on the family's front door, um, at all times of night. And and the front door was directly below uh, Richard's bedroom, so he would wake up every time it happened. Um, Harry was alone, and he was lonely. So every night when this would happen, Richard's dad would stumble down the stairs. He would sleepily open the front door, and Harry would just walk himself in, walk himself over to the favorite chair in the family room, uh, sit down and fall asleep and stay there until the sun came up. He'd get up and go back home. This continued for six months until Harry was taken to the hospital where he would die of terminal cancer alone. Richard Plass kind of recounts all of that um, in his book, and, and he writes this. He writes of Harry. He says, Harry tolerated his loneliness until his end was in sight. At that point, his way of coping no longer worked. In his final months, he could not help but pound on our front door in the middle of the night in a desperate attempt to find some relief through distant connection. Harry didn't vote for loneliness, but that is where he found himself, and that is where many of us find ourselves. Hopefully, we are not as desperate as Harry was, but many have experienced an inner void that fosters anxiety over the empty places in our souls. Loneliness is one of the most universal experiences. Loneliness is the broad way that many of us travel. We develop ways to cope with its sadness, ways to manage its pain, and ways to exist with its emptiness. But the longer we live, the greater the chance we will find ourselves in deep shadows where the darkness proves difficult to bear. And Richard concludes those thoughts with this. He says, like Harry we wind up knocking on a door. Now, many of us, uh, you could say most of us, I would even say all of us here this morning, will knock on that door while we live here in Okinawa. Maybe right now you feel like you are knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Uh, you're like, man, I live in this beautiful tropical island. It's paradise What could be challenging? What could be difficult while I'm here? For those of you who have lived here for a little while, you don't feel that way at all anymore. Um, Based on my experiences here, like for me personally and pastorally, like if you take the collection, the anecdotal collection of all the people who have called Pillar home and have lived all over this island, um, based upon their experiences and my own and numerous others, At some point, you two will join Harry, driven by loneliness, to knock on a door. Uh, This will be because some of you will live in places on this island that make make it far more challenging to regularly connect with other people in meaningful ways. I I just want to let you know this is very common for people in our church who live to the north, north of Courtney, um, to the south, down at Kinzer. to just regularly feel somewhat disconnected just because of where you live and the traffic patterns and just all the dynamics of this island, to feel somewhat disconnected from the life of the church. I want you to know that you're, you're not alone in that if that's how you feel. Some of you will have work rhythms here that make meaningful relationships difficult to, fam- uh, difficult to cultivate. 
Um, and we're not just talking about meaningful relationships outside of your family. Some of you are going to have work rhythms that are so intense here uh, that it makes cultivating meaningful relationships inside of your family a very real thing. And maybe that's where some of the loneliness is found. Some of you will encounter personal crisis or struggle that cause you to want to turn in on yourself and away from community. But whether or not you experience any of those dynamics, there is a reality that we all share. Every one of us are all a very long way from family and lifelong friends. You're going to knock on that door. That's something that Linnea and I were reminded of when we began our journey home to Okinawa following our sabbatical a few weeks ago. It was a beautiful summer. I shared some of that last week. It was a beautiful summer with our, with our parents, uh, with grandparents, especially for our kids, uh, with my brothers, with Linnea's brothers, with sister, um, the one sister, lots of boys, um, with our cousins. Sometimes, you know, for the first time for some of my kids to get to know their cousins, saw many lifelong friends and introduced our kids to people that we have known for a lifetime, but they had, they had yet to meet. It was beautiful. But what's the reality? You leave them all behind when you live here, don't you? None of them are here. And they're all a very long and somewhat expensive plane ride away. And the truth is, you'll make a few trips, but most of them will not make any trips. For many of them, it's just a little bit out of reach. And that, for most of us, introduces an ache into your soul, a strong and abiding sense of loneliness. It's tempting... It's very tempting to view that loneliness as a consequence or a curse even of living here in Okinawa. I've heard that verbally expressed. Maybe you've thought it. Maybe you've verbally expressed it. Um, It's very tempting to view that loneliness as a consequence or a curse of living here in Okinawa. Or perhaps, if not Okinawa, perhaps one of the countless other faraway places that your career has taken you, far away from family and lifelong friends. But this morning, I want to encourage us to think differently about loneliness. In light of our text in Genesis, which we read and we'll consider again in a few moments, um, let's consider viewing loneliness this way. Here it is. My loneliness is a gift. My loneliness is a gift. My loneliness is a gift insofar as it compels me to run to my Creator And my loneliness is a gift insofar as it compels me to participate more deeply in the lives of others. I just want to pause to clarify one thing because I just, on the second half of that sentence, some of you heard, I need to go be friends with even more people. That's not what I said. So let me just say the last half of that sentence again. And it it can be my friend. Loneliness is a gift when it compels me to participate more deeply in the lives of others. All right, my loneliness is a gift. You're like, what? I saw some raised eyebrows. I saw some shrugged shoulders. I saw some papers go down and pens get thrown. Uh, I saw you. I saw looks of like, all right, John, you went on sabbatical. What did you read? Where'd you go? Who'd you hang out with? What did you, sm- no, what did you, what did you do? Loneliness is a gift. What are you talking about? It's the last time we send you on sabbatical. As I was preparing this week, I was reading in Ecclesiastes, and I read a verse that I believe is very closely related to this conversation. It's kind of tucked away. 
It might be unfamiliar, but I really like the way it restates a, a truth that is found all through Scripture. This is Ecclesiastes 7.29. The writer of Ecclesiastes is an older man who's lived some life and made a lot of mistakes, probably. And he's writing from those experiences, but he's, he's also writing as an older man who kind of steps back and wisely can take it all in. He can view it all, and he's making these summary statements about life. And here's Ecclesiastes 7.29. He writes this. This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay, so what does it mean to be created upright relationally in the image of God? Well, it means that I'd be postured towards God. It means that I'd be submitting to him as my creator. To be upright means that I would be gladly serving him and representing him as I was created to do. That, that is why we exist. We were created to know him and love him and serve him and represent him, to be relating to him and be enjoying him. That's what it means to be created upright. That's, that's what it means. But the writer introduces this other idea that that's not what we do, though. That's not what we're doing. We seek out these schemes, he says. Uh, the word scheme simply means a different plan, my own plan. Like, that's God's plan, but I have a heart that runs after schemes. And so he's, collectively, he's saying, uh, we together run away from the God who created us and pursue our own schemes rather than gladly embracing the creative design and the plan that God has given us out of kindness. In rebellion, the first created man, Adam, turned his back on his creator, and every generation has done the same since. That is the storyline of the Bible. And I think sometimes it would be good, it, look guys, the storyline of the Bible is done being written. It's done. It's, 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 there's a period at the end of the sentence, and there it is. But you ever wonder what it would look like if it was still being written? Imagine, because there are real people's names written in here. The stories of them running. Some of them returning, some of them not. I wonder what it would do to our hearts if the storyline was live. Like imagine if it was being written and the lives of all God's people were still being written into the book in a way that we could read them for morning devotions. I don't know, that, that would be interesting. But the storyline wouldn't change. Uh, it's been the same for every generation. Um, I'm no different, neither are you. We, we bear the consequences together of Adam's rebellion. Like that was a one-time curse that, that came upon mankind. It's Adam chose to rebel. He received the consequences, but all mankind also received the consequences for that rebellion. But even if we didn't, I am my own Adam. Uh, I pile on to Adam's rebellious choices, and so do you. We ran and we run from our father just like he did, and we scheme all along the way. How do we scheme? Well, if we're created to look to him, that's, that's what being created upright means. Scheming would mean, okay, I don't look to him anymore. Now I look inward. I look to myself to find, to look for what I can only find in God. That's kind of the narrative of our generation now anyway. You're the answer. It's all subjective. You need to, if you, need, if, you, if you want to find answers, you need to search your soul deep enough, long enough. You will find it. It's, it's in there. You'll find the answer. The gospel is so liberating and just telling us so kindly and looking you in the eye and saying, dog, 
You're not the answer, nor does the answer reside in your soul. So that's a scheme. Uh, We scheme by looking to others. Uh, We look to others to satisfy or to do what only God can satisfy or to do. Uh, We look to our work for identity when we should be looking to to our creator God for identity. We look to work for satisfaction. We look to recreation for peace or a sense of relief or joy. We look to our fitness. We look to a substance. We look to anything that's all scheming. So here it is. My loneliness is a gift because it exposes my schemes. It exposes every one of them as inadequate. That's what my loneliness is saying. The scheming is inadequate. It's a gift. My loneliness is a gift because it serves as my explosions in the sky. Great band, by the way. Uh, they are from Austin, to Texas, and we don't hold that against them. Um, do you know what? Do you, have you ever heard of them? You've heard their music? You have, and you don't know it. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different movies and stuff. Um, they are a post-rock band. Did you know that's a thing? Isn't that funny? We're in a post-everything world, post-this, post-that. Did you know it's now a post-rock world too? They're a post-rock band. And uh, anyway, the story, the name of their, uh, the reason behind their name is they left one of their first gigs. It went really well. They were excited. They were coming into their own. They, they kind of walk out of this venue and there is just instantaneously there's this explosion in the sky. Somewhere nearby, there was a fireworks show happening. So the sky just blows up with fireworks and they all step back in awe. And one of them's like, there's our band name. That's, that's who we are, explosions in the sky. Guys, my loneliness is a gift because it serves as my explosion in the sky. Um, my family and I live in a place in Chaton where... Um, during the tourist season, which is most of the year for American Village especially. Did you know that we just passed Hawaii in tourism dollars and people traffic here? Like Okinawa is rapidly rising in the global world for uh, tourist, for, for being a well sought out tourist destination. So anyway, all through tourism season, fireworks abound. So we live in a place where almost like clock, clockwork on, on summer nights and other times of the year, you can just start to hear it. <laughs> Like you, you, you hear them go and the kids know exactly what's going on. So we rush to the top of the home and we can look out and you see just the entire night sky filled with a fireworks display over American village. What do fireworks do? They shatter the darkness and they shed light on things that you would otherwise not see in that darkness. My loneliness is a gift because it serves as an explosion in the sky. My schemes have been exposed as inadequate, and my loneliness serves as that nightly explosion constantly arcing high over every attempted scheme. And my Father mercifully shines light into the dark corners of my heart, and he says to me, Son, John, that I need to show that is another scheme. You're running again. That's a scheme, and it's, it's inadequate. Come back. Come back home to me, son. I am the only one who can conquer that lingering, aching loneliness. Now, this loneliness can lead me to keep scheming, right? I have a heart that tends to run. I run. I'm a runner. Every, every person has run away from the Father. The only one ever um, to run away from the Father for the right reason is Jesus himself. He ran from the Father to rescue those of us who had run in rebellion. He picks us up, rescues us, and runs back to the Father to bring us home where we belong. The rest of us just run and run and run and run. 
And so if I keep running in that loneliness, if I keep scheming, if I keep looking, okay, that'll satisfy me. No, this will crush my loneliness. This will satisfy my heart. He will do it. She will do it. This will do it. Scheming, scheming, scheming. I'm its slave, and loneliness is no friend. But when loneliness compels me to forsake my scheming and run to my creator, it is now a priceless gift and a really good friend. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. And I think just with the way words change, if Packer were to rewrite that book now, I think he, would, he might clarify and say, Knowing about God is important and foundational because you can't know him if you don't know about him. So we've got to know about him. But that's not all he's trying to say. You've got to know him. Like you've got to be, rela- you've got to be relationally knowing him. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. I like football. I know the names of most of the starters on the team. Not all of them, but a fair amount of them. And I know a little bit about them from social media. Um, sadly, that doesn't mean that I know any of them because in fact, I don't. Uh, in fact, they don't know me, and they don't care to know me, nor do they care that I root for their team. Um, just to put that out there, sports fans, it is a very one-way relation. They really don't care. It's not your team, and it's not a plural pronoun. It's not, we're going to beat so-and-so tomorrow. Um, I don't know them. There's no relational depth there. I just know something about them. Guys, we've got to know God as Father. It is not enough to know about him or to know Bible verses or to know church history or to know some doctrine or to know theology. It's not enough. All of those things are good things pointing us to him to know him, but we've got to know him. Packer continues, he says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. In this way, you will waste your life and lose your soul. So guys, if that's true, if to not know God personally is to waste my life and lose my soul, my loneliness is a beautiful gift insofar as it compels me to run to my creator and to know him because it serves as that explosion in the sky to expose my schemes and to send me back to my father. And what do we discover or what are we reminded of when we run to him? Well, we read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we discover this. We're reminded of this, that I am created in his image after his likeness. That's what we know as the Imago Dei. We are, we are in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Now, you notice the author uses two words, image and likeness. He's not trying to communicate two different ideas as if we have to sit here and figure out, oh yeah, I'm created an image and likeness. That must be two different things. What does it mean over here? What does it mean over there? That's not what happened, not, not what's happening. They're, they're nearly synonyms. They're just two words meant to reinforce each other. Like if you were complimenting somebody or you went to a meal and you're leaving a review, you're gonna use all kinds of words to say just one thing, to say the same thing so that people understand. That's all he's doing. There's just one idea here. And taken together, these two words mean that we are created um, not identical to, we're not God and we're not God's, but very, 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 very similar to God. He's my father. Um, I share his DNA, like my kids and me. Um, Johnny is not me. Owen is not me. Emma is not me. Yeah, she just shook her head emphatically. You go, girl. She's like, yes. Um, but they're very similar to me. 
and that similarity is expressed differently in each, each one of them, but each one of them bear the stamp of the image of John Ransom. They are, they are obviously my kids. For some, it's more obvious physically. For others, it's more obvious emotionally, um, intellectually. I mean, there, there are lots of ways that image is expressed. They're similar to me. So relationally, Imago Dei means this. It means I have been created like him to relate to him, okay? There's a big idea in our text today. I have been created like God for the purpose of relating with God. Now, admittedly, there is so much wrapped up in this idea of being created in the Imago Dei. So just full disclaimer, I'm not trying to give that lecture today. Not even gonna try because you can't. There are volumes written on what it means to be created in the image of God. I can recommend some books for you later. Um, If you'd like, some time ago we preached a sermon that was a little more comprehensive on the Imago Dei, but we just kind of rebooted our website. So it's not there right now, but we'll we'll work to make that available to you. And and maybe you can listen to that. It's a more comprehensive view. But today, uh, we just want to look at the relational implications of what it means to be created in the Imago Dei. So let's say it again. I have been created like God to relate with God. You could say it this way. We are relational beings because we are created in the image of God a relational God. You're like, okay, I don't understand what you mean when you say relational God. What does that mean? We get God pre-existed before us. He was around before we were, but if we weren't there, where's the relationship? Well, God has existed eternally as three persons in one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They have eternally existed in perfect unity and perfect love for all of eternity. Our minds don't have the capacity to look back far enough. We stop being able to reason. Um, God transcends even our reason. He was here in perfect unity and love before that, for eternity. One in essence three in person, perfect love, perfect unity. Listen, we are created in that image, in that relational image. We are created to find our home here. This is home for us. We are created to find our identity here. We are created to find our purpose here, our capacity for relationship here, a satisfied heart here. You know what's crazy about all this? Like, most of us are familiar with a creation narrative. Many of us think God created us because he needed something from us. Did you know that God did not need us for anything when he created us, when he decided to create us? Again, they existed in this perfect community, this perfect family that lacked absolutely nothing, nothing. But God in his kindness chooses to create us and invite us to give us, to stamp us with his image, to create us for this capacity so that we can know him and enjoy him and enjoy the very same unity and love and being that they enjoy together as Father, Son, and Spirit. In his kindness, he creates us, he gives us life, and then he adopts us into this perfect love and community that they share. So you were created to receive his love and participate in his community, in this family. I am created, you are created to contribute. We receive, but we also give. We give this kind of self-sacrificing love for the good of others. It's beautiful. And we are created to invite others into this kind of relationship. I'm created so that my soul will be most satisfied, most alive 
when I am close to my Father. So guys, we could say it this way. Your loneliness is proof of our relational design. One of the songwriters who contributed to the Psalms was deeply aware of his own tendency to scheme and to run from his father. He knew of his own need to tell himself, to tell his own heart, go back, you're scheming, go back to your father, go back home. I know your heart is looking for uh, something that will satisfy this loneliness, something that will soothe the ache, but it's a scheme. You've got to go back home. I just want to share one verse from the Psalm. It's Psalm 116, 7 where he writes, this is a song, guys. He's writing a song to remind himself, and he writes, return, O my soul. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Where's his rest? Back in proximity to his father. Why? For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Guys, we have a father who always deals bountifully with his kids. What does that mean? He, 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 he delights in giving us not just what we need, but more than what we need. He satisfies our hearts with good things and he enjoys doing it. It's never begrudging or reluctant. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Return to your Father, for he deals bountifully with us. Are you lonely? Man, Imago Day. Run back home to your Father. Return to your rest. Guys, loneliness is a gift when it has this vocabulary. When our loneliness expresses itself this way, it is a faithful friend and a beautiful gift. But all too often we feel trapped, right? We feel enslaved by our loneliness. And and it is true, we are its slave as long as it leads us to scheme further away from the Father. Then we are actually, indeed, loneliness's slave. And we are its slave as long as it leads us to keep on scheming and scheming and scheming. But when loneliness becomes your explosion in the sky and exposes your schemes and sends you running back home, it is no longer your master. Loneliness now becomes your servant. It's your servant. And it unexpectedly becomes a life-giving gift because what was life-threatening to you before? Loneliness? Which is life-threatening? What was life-threatening before now gives life because it propels me back to the God who created me. And that's a beautiful thing. That's why God's family has always been commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We read those words out of the Gospels this morning. Jesus spoke them. And then he said, in the same way that you love yourself, like there's, there's multiple implications here. We love God. It's got this Godward implication, but also this human relationship implication. Those words are rooted deep in the Old Testament. God's family has always been commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Why? Because you're created in his image. So the Imago Dei has to be the starting point for our relational series Knowing and loving God first and most is foundational and the most important relational thing we can give ourselves to. Listen, any other starting point would betray us. Any other starting point would betray us. We had to start here because I only truly know myself when I look to my creator. Again, culturally, we're, to- we're told if you want to know yourself, you need to look inside of yourself. That's a lie. You'll look at a distorted image of who you were created to be and who you are. You look to the Father. You look to the God who created you. I'm not created in my own image. I don't bear my own image. 
I bear my Father's image. So I, I know myself truly when I look to him. I learn that I'm created in his image. I learn that my heart is most satisfied when I'm close to him. And I learn to love, listen, I learn to love and live in community with others only when I am learning and receiving from him. See, we are so tempted to start with symptoms. I have this challenge in my marriage. I have this challenge in my singleness. I have this challenge in X fill in the blank relationship. I have this challenge. I gotta, I gotta fix that. But all of those things, all, every single relational challenge is symptomatic and the root can always be traced back to this command to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Because listen, every hurt, every pain, every struggle, every challenge in your relationship has come from a failure to obey that command. Not necessarily your failure, right? We have multiple tributaries running into a relationship. My own rebellion, your rebellion, your spouse's rebellion, your parents' rebellion. Look, some of the challenges you have relationally are not even necessarily the result right now of your disobedience or your spouse's disobedience or somebody else's right now around you now. They could be the result of a disobedience from a father, a mother, a grandparent. These are far-reaching implications. All I'm trying to say is it all trickles down. So every challenge we face right now relationally is symptomatic. We can't, that can't be our starting point. The starting point has got to be the, be the imago day, the image of God. And this command here to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. Alienation from my creator God is death for my soul. Alienation from my creator God is not only death for my soul, it will sow seeds of death in all my relationships. So that's negative. We could say it positively. You need seeds of life sown into your relationships. It starts with proximity to the Father and submission to his kind kingly rule and submission to his beautiful design for your life as a man or a woman, a husband or a father, a son, a daughter, a sibling. You fill in the blank, a single person. That's where it starts. Seeds of life are sown as my soul lives in proximity to the Father who created me. But like, like we mentioned, the relational aspect of the Imago Dei begins with, I am created like him to relate with him, but it extends and it includes, I am created like him to relate like him with others. It doesn't just stop. A healthy human is not just rightly related to the Father. A healthy human being is rightly related to the Father through Jesus and then the overflow of that relationship of living within the Imago Dei, of receiving and giving and, and just proximity to the Father then extends out into my relationships with other people. Because check this out. Sometimes we read Genesis, the creation account, and we forget about this. Even though Adam was at home with the Father, what does God himself say later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, about the situation? When he assesses the situation for Adam, how does he assess it? Remember, he's already created everything. Day one, check, good, good. Day two, good. Man, that's good, that's great. This is gonna be beautiful. Good, 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 good. Then he looks at Adam's situation and what does he say? Dog, this ain't good. This, this is not good uh, for you to be alone. But think about that. Where was Adam in proximity to the father? He was right there. Good relationship, close to the Father. You think, well, then he's got everything he needs, right? No, the Father himself said, this is not good. I'm gonna make a helper uh, fit for him. So even though Adam was perfectly related to God, the Imago Dei within him demanded deep 
participation in the life of other image bearers. Guys, we've got to hear that. You, we've got to hear that. It's not enough to be rightly related to God. As an image bearer, you are designed to be in deep and meaningful, life-giving, self-sacrificing relationship with other image bearers. And guys, look, I know this text about Adam and a helper um, and Eve has to do with marriage and God's creative design of our sexuality. And we're going there. The next couple weeks and the weeks following, we're going there. But this morning, I just want us to see this foundational principle that relationship with other image bearers is life, blood for the soul. And so my loneliness is, is a gift in the sense that it, it, it can serve me and compel me to run back to my creator and expose my, my schemes, but my loneliness is also a gift insofar as it compels me to participate more deeply in the lives of others. But remember what we, we read in Ecclesiastes 7. The writer said, This alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We have schemes as it relates to our relationship with God. We ran from him. But we also have schemes as it relates to relationship with other people. We run there too. So uh, without trying to to go over them all, what are a couple ways that we run in regards to relationship with other people? Sometimes we run from deep participation, right? For a variety of reasons, you may have legitimate hurt from previous relationships, uh, legitimate fear, insecurity. For some of you, it's pride. For some of you, it's just kind of the way God wired you as you're more of an introvert, Uh, You're more of an introvert, and so you tend to run from uh, that deep participation. But that running, that that becomes scheming as well because we're not living out the implications of the imago Dei with with fellow image bearers around us. That's one way. Uh, We can run from that deep participation. Uh, Some of us run to people, lots of people, but not for deep participation just because people, 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 people. I need more people in my life, Um, and you know who you are. But we don't necessarily run to all those people for deep participation. There is a width to the relationship, and the width becomes a substitute for the depth that we are designed to have with a smaller community of image bearers of God. We go wide, but we don't go deep, and there's little depth of conversation. We don't look each other in the eyes, and we don't meet meaningfully men with other men to just talk and to look each other in the eyes and to confess and to rejoice, to laugh, and yes to cry. That makes us really uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it's what you're created for. So we run from deep participation. We run to people, but not uh, deep participation. We run to substitutes instead of cultivating that deep participation with people. Here's an example, and I'm just going to pick, it's not picking on you, uh, but I just have to say it because it's in the text and it's awesome. So I'll just apologize ahead ahead of time. Sorry, pet people, but I have to say it. When God declared that it wasn't good over Adam, what had already been created? Animals. Adam had a dog. Actually, after the first worship gathering, somebody came up to me and was like, dude, Adam didn't just have a dog. Like, he was in a dream world. He had all the pets, all the cool pets that you can't afford or legally keep in your home in any civilized country. Adam had all the pets. What did God, we're not sure about a cat. We're still trying to theologically tease that out. Some scholars believe the cat came in after the fall, so we're not sure. But, hey, no, if you're a cat lover, I'm just kidding. We know Jesus created, the Father, together with Christ and the Spirit, created all the animals before the fall. We don't know what happened to cats along the way, but, like, good, good. 
but all kidding aside, animals are given to us as a beautiful gift and they glorify our Father, but they are insufficient. They are inadequate and they cannot be a substitute for a human being. What about technology? Uh, I read a fascinating article this week. The, the title was Humans versus AI, Artificial Intelligence. Who is better at building relationships? That's what the article explored. And one of the quotes is this, with the invention of emotional intelligence, the field of artificial intelligence has received tremendous boost, resulting in more quality interaction with humans. Some of our researchers believe that AI may totally eradicate the need for human relationships. Yeah, we scoff, don't we? And I'm, I'm glad you verbally expressed that. What? No way. But let me just ask you this. Like, do we actually scoff? We scoff out loud, but if we were to, well, maybe we should do this. Let's keep a journal this week. Just two columns. Let's make it math. It's numbers. Let's add up the time investment that we have with fellow image bearers face-to-face where we're looking them in the eye versus the AIEI column where we are looking into the eyes of artificial and emotional intelligence and mechanized things that we have created. I don't think we scoff as much as we think we scoff. That's a scheming, guys. That is a form of scheming and running from the implications of the Imago Dei rather than cultivating depth with other people who bear that image. Sometimes we use people instead of relating with them. We can use them professionally. People become a means to an end in your organization, in your command, in your chain of command. Like we have to get this thing here and it doesn't matter who we kill along the way or who we have to run into the ground or whose lives we destroy. Or like people are a means to an end. Um, military can do it. The commercial world can do it. World can do it. Politics can do it. Churches, unfortunately, can do this. But guys, our families can do this too, where people become a means to an end. That dishonors the Imago Dei. We can do so recreationally. One of the most common temptations for us in our generation, um, men and women, is the consumption of pornography for the gratification of myself. That is a form of scheming. It dishonors the Creator and it dishonors the Imago Dei and other image bearers. We can do so racially. I'm better than you are because of fill in the blank skin color, country of origin. You fill in the blank. But the Imago Dei is universally applied to all people. Um, Scripture is clear on that. But that is a way that we scheme. I'm better than you because, or I don't need to relate with you because. And maybe there are less obvious ways. For example, these are ways that we wouldn't, are not obvious to anybody else. But if we take a quiet moment in our hearts, we know the seeds of these thoughts are present. Here's a way that we scheme and we run. We look at our wives and we think to ourselves, if she was only fill in the blank, my heart would be different. We look at our husbands and say, I can't believe I ever said yes. If I had seen, if he would only, and we scheme and we think if I had a better husband or a better wife or a different husband or a different wife, I wouldn't have this loneliness. We scheme that quietly because we're ashamed of those thoughts, most of us, and there's fear associated with those thoughts. But no, that is a common temptation that every person wrestles with. It's a form of scheming. It's a form of scheming and running. Loneliness will expose these schemes, and loneliness will serve as my explosion in the sky, reminding me of my need first for my father. All of my symptoms relationally, all of those thoughts, all of those feelings, all of the loneliness symptomatically is treated 
in proximity to my dad. That's where, that's where my soul is made well. And that's where I have the relational capacity to press back out into the imago day of other people and to live in a life-giving way, not a self-serving way for my Father's glory and for the good of other people. And proximity to my Father is the answer for every relational ill that I face right now. Relationship with my Father is lifeblood for my soul and deep, meaningful participation in the lives of others is also lifeblood for my soul because I am created in the imago day. Loneliness is also a gift because it helps me look and listens, listen for expressions of the Imago Dei, not just in myself, but in other people. Here's an example. Hospitality extended is a verbal expression from another image bearer that I know I'm created for community and I desire it and I want it and I want to invite you in. So what then should be our response as fellow image bearers who are aware of the implications of the Imago Dei and the need for meaningful human relationship? Yes, yes, I will go over to your house. We have nothing in common. I feel a little uncomfortable. I don't know what to talk about, but I'm gonna honor the Imago Dei expressed by you and I'm going to go and I'm gonna step into your space and I'm gonna look, look you in the eye and if for no other reason than honors the God who created me. But there are other reasons. I know it will be life-giving to you and I know it will be life-giving to myself too to submit to my Father's good design and to step into this. So when somebody extends that hospitality to you, that's the Imago Dei being expressed and you have the privilege of saying, yeah, man, I will gladly sit down at your table and share a meal with you. Hospitality hoped for is also a silent expression of the Imago Dei. Uh, this week, I read an article by Rebecca McLaughlin, and her article is entitled, Make Sunday Mornings Uncomfortable. Her premise is, um, friends can wait. And she writes, she writes um, man, I'm sorry to cut you off. I had just started connecting with a close friend at church, and I was eager to catch up. But as she talked, I noticed a woman sitting alone, thumbing through her service sheet. My guess is that we have all at one time or another walked into a gathering and wondered, man, who's gonna love me today? What if we asked ourselves instead, whom can I love? And here she, she writes this sentence that kind of um, has just been bouncing around in my soul all week. She writes, an alone person in our gatherings is an emergency because it is not good for man to be alone. Imago Day. An alone person is an emergency, and our family should not, as we grow in our understanding of the Imago Day, allow for people to be alone. My loneliness is a gift insofar as it compels me to participate more deeply in the lives of others. All right, let's wrap it. This week, I just want to encourage you to allow loneliness to serve you well by pointing you to Jesus. In this way, be like, be like Harry and knock on his door. Run to Jesus in your loneliness because Jesus alone rescues us from our schemes. Jesus became lonely so he could bring the lost, alone, and lonely back home to the Father. Jesus went alone to the cross where he would know the darkest and deepest of all loneliness. Jesus took all of our loneliness on himself. Every time you have felt a hint of loneliness, Jesus took that and internalized that into his soul on the cross. He took all of the consequences of our scheming and absorbed all the wrath of God for our, for our rebellion. The, for the first and only time in eternity, the Father turned his back on Jesus so that in Jesus, the Father could turn his face on us. Jesus closed his eyes in loneliness and in the darkness of death 
so the light of life would shine on the lost and the lonely. That's you and me. And now for those who repent and believe, Jesus is actively working to restore the Imago Dei in us that was so deeply marred by our rebellion. It's still present, but it's marred. And soon Jesus will return. He will finish this work and he will finish bringing us all the way home to the Father. And if this is true for you, the loneliness you feel now, man, that is the only loneliness you will know for eternity because when he returns, Jesus will vanquish all loneliness. If he is your hope, all your loneliness and scheming will finally be crushed. But friend, if Jesus is not your hope, all you will know forever is loneliness, forever alienated from your father, the God who created you. If Jesus is not your hope, the loneliness you feel now is simply a foreshadowing, just a sip of the loneliness that you will drink for an eternity. Allow your loneliness to point you to Jesus, our rescuer, the only one who can restore, the only one who can be our hope. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you to shine the light. We need you to explode your mercy in the sky, to expose our schemes, and to help us to run back to you, Father. Help us to do that this week. Return our souls to their rest and proximity to you. And Father, help us to turn back out to other image bearers, not many of them, not substitutes, but turn us back out in meaningful ways with other image bearers to live in life-giving, self-sacrificing ways that are good for them and glorifying for you. And we know, Father, that will be so life-giving for us. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for restoring the marred image of God in us. We look forward to your return when all of these sad things will finally come untrue and we will not know loneliness or scheming ever again. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.